1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Anthropology, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Amir Lehman. Today we are talking to Nicholas Harkness about his new book, *Glossolalia and the Problem of Language, published with the University of Chicago Press. Dr. Harkness is the modern Korean economy and society professor in anthropology and the social anthropology program director at Harvard University, and it is my great pleasure to welcome him now. Dr. Harkness, welcome.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Perhaps we can uh, start with you telling us a little bit about how you came to become an anthropologist and work on this topic in particular.
0: I'm um, sure. I think, like many people, my experience was really a series of accidents and opportunities. Um, I guess my motivation for this topic and for anthropology in general came from an interest in music and language, and the way these two things come together in the human voice. And I had always sung as a as a child and throughout my kind of young adult life. And I was always curious about the relationship um, one has with their own voice or one's body as they produce the voice or the social spaces in which voice happens. And also about uh, language and problems of translation and especially the conceptualization problem of language. And so as an undergraduate in college, I found myself asking um, questions about these two things, but not really finding a disciplinary framework in which to formulate these questions. So I continued to sing, and I studied German um, uh, language, literature, and philosophy as my kind of um, focus on language. In my undergraduate year of college, in my senior year, I took two anthropology courses, and one was totally thrilling, and one was terribly disappointing, and I'll let someone else figure out uh, which courses I'm talking about so as not to... Um, name names, but but buried beneath basically a pile of student loan debt, I went to work after college, but I worked in a company that had acquired a Chicago-based firm that was crawling with anthropologists. And so when I went to work for that company, I went to work for this unit and get to know these anthropologists um, and also to move to Germany, where I got to work on language, but also um, to continue singing. And so eventually, after about four years, I had chipped away at enough student loan debt to feel responsible enough to go to graduate school. And so I returned to questions of voice and I began to read widely in the anthropology or ethnomusicology, philosophy and linguistics to formulate a set of general questions about the human voice. I tapped this network of anthropologists um, from this company and I began to apply to graduate schools. And I was admitted to one Ph.D. program without funding at the University of Chicago. But I took it, I took out more student loans, and I began to study the voice. And the way I came to um, South Korea is uh, also a, a series of accidents, but um, it had to do with singing in Germany, where I began to notice the shocking number and quality of South Korean singers of operatic classical music. And so after I began my graduate training, I decided to ask, this was after I started my PhD, ask why. Um, why there was so much um, classical music singing in South Korea. And I had figured that there was a strong operatic public, in a sense, people showing up. But when I went there to find out what was going on, um, the con- uh, the concert halls were basically empty, uh, but it turns out the churches were full of these classical singing singers. So that's how I ended up studying the relationship between voice and classical music and Christianity in the first book. Um, and there, there too, it's really a series of accidents and opportunities. I came to the study of Gossalelia for the second book by way of the voice in Christian South Korea, where I was surprised to find that among these um, upper class, highly educated, multilingual singers of classical music, I could also find speaking in tongues. And not only did they speak in tongues, but, um, but they Their families spoke in tongues, and if they didn't speak in tongues, they had um, many experiences among people who were speaking in tongues, and all of these people were Presbyterians. This didn't make sense from the way the sociological picture of speaking in tongues is usually presented as a Pentecostal and largely charismatic practice. So I eventually became very interested in how it was that speaking in tongues um, had spread so widely across Christian denominations, um, how it was practiced practiced and how to take account of all the differences in its practice, and that's basically how I came to this book.
1: That's fascinating to hear, and, and of course there's that first book too um, that we got out of that. So, so you begin this book with a brief survey of previous scholarship on glossolalia. So how do you see the phenomenon, and, and in what way does your approach in this book differ?
0: So one of the challenges of the book um, was exactly coming to figure out how I saw the phenomenon. Um, and how you see it, obviously, is framed by um, the uh, intellectual tradition that's, that you're drawing on to frame it. And so there are were, there were different approaches to the problem, and they're clearly theological ones, um, which try to understand the practice of speaking in tongues, which in general sense is a kind of uh, denotationally, and we can talk a little bit more about that, but denotationally unintelligible form of speech that is related to um, the intervention into human activity of the Holy Spirit in a Christian tradition. That is, the Holy Spirit speaking through you is the most, um, the clearest way to put it. But what I found was that wasn't actually usually what was happening (laughs) among people who said they were speaking in tongues. There were all sorts of different experiences of what that verbal or language-like behavior was. Um, So the theological ones really focus on a couple of um, parts of the New Testament, Acts of the Apostles and and Paul's letters to the Corinthians. And... um, try to interpret the practice, but also justify and pres- prescribe approaches to the practice in terms of those those pieces, um, although there are a few other pieces. Um, and one can, if you're interested, look at the appendix of the book, uh, my book, for an account of the invention of the term glossolalia as deep glossolali in the early 19th century among um, Protestant theologians. When they themselves were shifting from a focus on um, Acts of the Apostles to Paul's letters in the Corinthians as they began to talk about the, and try to interpret um, the, the practice of speaking in tongues. So there are the theological ones. There are linguistic approaches, but what I found when I began to really dig in here is that there hadn't been a serious um, language-centered approach to the problem of glossolalia since the early 70s with William Samarin's um, famous book, um, Tongues of Men and Angels, from 1972. And it was a very serious study But it was carried out prior to developments in linguistic and semiotic anthropology that um, have incorporated what michael silverstein uh, my teacher who recently passed away from the university of chicago called the total linguistic fact that is that you have linguistic structure to be sure what we would call a code um, or a grammar you have linguistic practice all its uses its contextualized uses and its multiple um, compositional forms and Linguistic ideology, or the set of assumptions that um, speakers have, sometimes implicit, sometimes explicit, about what language is, what it does, and what it's used for. So to get a complete picture, you need all three, and what I found was Samarin's approach was really an incomplete, distorted picture, Um, although many of his observations I found as well in my own own materials. There are also um, approaches to this as a trance phenomenon, a kind of cultural psychology or neurophysiology in some cases, which is emphasized... um, the psychological state of the tongue speaker. And, for example, Felicitas Goodman's famous book from 1972, also, 72 with William Sammons, they had a major debate about what glossolalia was, really emphasized trance and dissociation and glossolalia being a correlate of these, these um, states. What happens empirically for me is that I find that most of the time that people are speaking in tongues, they are not trancing. They're not necessarily even dissociating. There are many different ways in which this denotational unintelligibility shows up and is called the, what in Korean is called panonkido, or speaking in tongues or glossolalia. Um, and it's, so it's categorized under, locally under the term glossolalia, but is not, um, does not um, necessarily exhibit these features of trance or dissociation. And there have been other um, approaches as well, the sociological ones that try to, you know, see it functionally as related to denominational belonging, or phenomenologically, especially in relation to forms of bodily awareness and action. But I saw those as all very informative in their own way, but relatively incomplete. And most of the materials um, are were pursued through um, largely anglophone. Or at least European contexts and this so the Korean context linguistically but also in terms of the context of language use provided a a very different view so my approach was to take the total linguistic fact as the basic problem that unites glossolalia across instances and contexts of use where the problem of language in structure practice and ideology is what unites the practice across all of its sometimes radically different uh, uh, con- contextual forms. Even if the forms themselves seem about the same, when you see what they're doing in context, they could be quite different.
1: So then speaking about context, the first chapter of your book um, opens by describing different attitudes uh, towards glossolalia that are across as members of a single family. So what kind of perspectives did you find there, and how did they relate to the church?
0: The This chapter that you're referring to, um, involves, as you say, opening with single members uh, members of a single family. And in fact, the chapter is organized into two families, one which is your sort of upper middle, upper middle class Presbyterian family and one which is um, Pentecostal, which has recently become more middle class and in fact is quite wealthy, but that's entirely through the church um, because the, the, in the Pentecostal family, the father is um, a pastor, uh, a fairly senior pastor at one of the Yo'idofu Gospel satellite churches. And uh, so I begin by looking at um, a family where um, Hejin, um is, who's my kind of anchor in this family, um, speaks regularly in, in tongues and um, dreams in tongues, and when, and she also has a variety of relationships to tongues. Sometimes it, she's taken over by the spirit. Sometimes she just produces her tongue. Sometimes she does it because she wants to connect um, with her her God, and sometimes she does it just. Um, Uh, for a kind of therapeutic purposes. There are all sorts of different ways in which um, she relates. So that diversity itself is very interesting, not necessarily surprising in a single person, but interesting. What's interesting is that within this family, um, all the members, her husband, her mother, and her father, have some relationship with tongues, um, but they all um, are are quite uh, different in how tongues then become um, valorized within South Korean Christianity. So her husband, for example, has spoken in tongues, but generally against his will. And he, he didn't ever want to speak in tongues and was often brought to places in which tongues were being spoken by his mother. Or when he was working at a Pentecostal church where it was you know required that he speak in tongues. Or when praying with other students abroad where tongues took over him and he didn't want it. And he's always been extremely suspicious of it in part because of its relationship with what he perceives to be shamanism or popular religion, in part because he's just not not sure entirely what is going on. And so he generally tries to avoid it. Higin's mother, for example, can't speak in tongues, but desires it as a way of belonging to the church, but also of um, valorizing herself as, as a true Christian with adequate faith. Her father prays with lots of people who speak in tongues, but has absolutely no interest in it. Um, and these are all Presbyterians. And so I use this family as just a way into the problem to lay out the diversity um, of practice, but also the way in which you have, in a sense, micro-theologies at work across these different, um, these different experiences that paint a picture of a, of a really diverse um, and variable and um, uh, um, dynamic space in which tongues is practiced. And then I move to a Pentecostal family, which is... Um, very much anchored to the Yoido Full Gospel Church, which is the epicenter and also the historical center of the emergence of speaking in tongues in South Korea, where it's much more of a unified view of the role of tongues. And it's much more familiar, I think, to um, to what um, studies of Pentecostals, Pentecostalism has presented in terms of the role of the Holy Spirit and charismatic forms.
1: So, so then this takes us to the next chapter where you really begin to flesh out the theoretical arguments of the book. Uh, so, what do you mean when you say that glossolalia is produced at the ideological limits of language?
0: The um, the challenge of dealing with any anthropological form is that you have to um, formulate it. You know, it's not really handed to you. Even if it, you think what you're looking at is exactly the same as what someone else has written about, pretty soon you realize it might um, it might be different. And so, I had the challenge of um, formulating. Glossolalia as an anthropological object of analysis um, in terms of this total linguistic fact of structure, practice and ideology. So I developed the idea that we can understand glossolalia not as a failure of language or a facade of language. For example, if one takes a more narrowly linguistic and especially formal linguistic approach, that it, it will fail certain linguistic tests if you only hold it up to those tests, but rather as a semiotic practice, one involving all sorts of signs And and we have to point out that language involves all sorts of signs, some of which will be relatively unique to language and some of which will look very similar to things that are non-linguistic. And it's the ideological problem of drawing those lines between what is properly linguistic and what is, you know, involves just social semiotics and sign behavior more generally. Let's just say that's, that's a general ideological problem that every discipline and, in a sense, every person, even if indirectly, has to deal with. And so, when it comes to glossolalia, rather than treating it as failing some sort of linguistic test, if you see it as a broad um, semiotic problem where it is justified by an ideological core of language, that is, it is said to contain what language must contain in order for it to be language, which by most accounts is something we call denotation, that is, the way these forms reliably correspond to classes of things in the world. When we talk about reference and semantics, these are aspects of what produces denotation. So denotation often sits at the ideological core, and in order to make truth claims, for example, ones that come through um, uh, uh, scripture, you need denotation to make those claims and decide whether they're true or not. But if you look at glossolalia, it is justified by this ideological core of language containing denotation, but in fact it's produced at the ideological limit. That is, glossolalia works by actually suppressing the, um, what is necessary for language, even while it um, holds out the promise of revealing exactly that thing. And that thing would be revealed when glossolalia, for example, is interpreted. Um, no one can understand it until someone can interpret it, and then it is understood, and then it said, ah, it did all along contain denotation. So what is interesting is that in suppressing this core, it removes, especially what we would call the semantico-referential function. I realize that sounds very technical, but it's words for things in the most general sense. But continuing to produce other linguistic features like phonological ones, that is sound, uh, syntax, so ordering of the segments, prosodic, that is the kind of uh, sing-song quality of, of, that we find in speech, in order to produce, again, the um, idea and the reality, in the religious context, for for glossolalia to contain this ideological core. So it's a very complicated dialectic um, because it requires a lot of different pieces across structure, practice, and ideology. So the emphasis in this chapter is to lay that out in empirical form, to show some examples of it, and also to show the way that a number of features of language are suppressed even while they're maintained in limited form. So phonology or the sound system, a prosodic system, and what we would call an indexical system, or the signs that point to contexts of use. And this is extremely important in the Korean context because a language like Korean um, contains a large portion of structural or formal categories of language, that is what you can segment into what we would call morphemes, but that is not denotational. This is... A little bit unfamiliar to most, for example, English speakers where we don't have um, built-in indexical forms in the same way that a language like Korean or another language like Japanese does have and these are called um, formalized social indexicality or honorific forms that don't refer to anything but are loaded with pragmatic or interactional value. So those two play a role here. So the chapter as a whole then looks at how limits are placed upon Korean speech and by the same token how speech is taken then to the limits of language in a ritual setting of group prayer that goes from relatively intelligible to one that resembles something like cacophony where more than ten thousand people at the yoido full gospel church are praying together Um, and by analyzing this i show how these limits both on individual speech and this kind of collaborative ritual space are productive for actually reinforcing the ideological core of language as such
1: fantastic you you then you then contrast um how the word of god is conceptualized in two churches which you alluded, alluded to earlier uh one is pentecostal and the other presbyterian so how do these i language ideologies ultimately provide the conditions for the congregants to experience the divine
0: sure as you can see that um for for as, as complicated as i'm making this problem a lot of the rhetorical moves rely on compare and contrast so it's actually quite simple in some ways but um you know when we talk about the Pentecostal and the Presbyterian, for example, which, which, is, a, which is a structure I use a lot to make um, certain differences um, stand out. So one of the most important linguistic ideological objects, that is, objects of language ideology in the study of Christianity is the notion of the word. That is, the word of God. And one of the most important activities in Christianity is the impulse to evangelize by reproducing the word, translating the word, carrying the word, and so forth. So the chapter is a comparison of the way different sermons by different pastors treat the word. One in the Yoido Full Gospel Church, which, as I mentioned, is um, the sort of epicenter of Pentecostalism and glossolalia in South Korea. Um, It's a church that at one point claimed more than 800,000 people. And then a large Presbyterian church of close to 100,000 people. And by comparing how these different pastors treat the word, um, we can see some important differences in its relationship to what glossolalia might mean in the context of these different churches where glossolalia is practiced. At the Oidobol Gospel Church, it's central to theology. At this Presbyterian church, Sarangekyohe, it is um, part of the religious life of its, its congregation, but it's not central to the theology. So I point out that the word is conceptualized across both of these spaces in terms of movement. That is, this notion of carrying, or bringing, or spreading, or receiving, or sending, so on and so forth, the word. However, the movement that comes to the fore in the Presbyterian megachurch has a very strong denotational emphasis with social effects. That is, much more according to the kind of truth we imagine um, in logic. That is, if you have this chunk of text that points out the truth, and this logical truth is transported from one person to another then it will change the world by revealing the truth. This is something that's more familiar to like a kind of academic context. In the Pentecostal setting, this is certainly still true, but the word itself is also formulated much more as a transformative spiritual substance that um, when seriously engaged, will transform experience itself, revealing the world as it really is, as it already has been made by the divine in prior moments. And this is part of Cho Young-Gi, Um, Cho Yonggi is the founder of the church. So part of Cho Yonggi's theology, which from the point of view of more mainline Christians can be sometimes heterodox, even heretical. But the emphasis on the movement of the word here is much more in creating connections of spiritual movement and force um, to a supernatural or divine realm, what Cho Yonggi calls the fourth dimension. And so this has major consequences then for the place of glossolalia across these two kinds of spaces. And one of the goals of the project was not to treat glossolalia alone, but to hold it up against all sorts of other um, linguistic practices, some of them um, radically different and seemingly unrelated in order to get a better sense for the the relationship between speaking in tongues and the uh, linguistic life of Christianity in these various contexts.
1: So then that takes us to the next chapter where you take the reader to the spring of 1973, where uh, American evangelist Billy Graham went to Korea and preached in front of a crowd of over one million. So who was his translator, and what role did he play in the importance of the event?
0: The interpreter or translator was someone named Jangwon Billy Kim, um, a Baptist minister from South Korea who had studied at Bob Jones Academy and then returned to South Korea to build his ministry in Suwon, which is a, a city just south of Seoul. And so Billy Graham does, you know, has done, did, I guess, before his passing, these large, what they used to call crusades with, you know, tens of thousands, potentially hundreds of thousands of people. And here in the spring of 1973, on an airstrip that had been used for, um, by the military dictatorship of Korea at that time, but also prior to that by various military governments, including the US and the Japanese colonial government you have a gathering on the final day of this crusade of more than a million people. So the largest gathering ever for a Billy Graham event. And next to him is this um, Baptist preacher, Jang Han Billy Kim. And there are a number of interesting details about how Billy Kim, and it's just an accident that his name is Billy. He didn't take this name after meeting Billy Graham, but uh, before, how Billy Kim came to be the interpreter for Billy Graham at this enormous event. But the thing I think that's most important to stress here um, is how in the analysis, the way this trope of movement that I just talked about in the prior chapter of the word that is among people, among contexts throughout history, from heaven to earth, so on and so forth, is literalized, is made real and literal in the way that Billy Kim became utterance by utterance and gesture by gesture Billy Graham for that Korean speaking audience. He did a full embodiment of Billy Graham the preacher as a Korean preacher. And I show how through the poetics of their collaborative performance, one can trace in Billy Kim's interpretation of Billy Graham, the movement in time of the word from Billy Graham's English speech to Billy Kim's Korean speech. And especially, again, it's contextualization for these different language communities because they do very different things in context, especially when you're trying to produce um, a linguistic or verbal force that will change people's minds. So it's difficult to put this simply without laying out all of the data, and a lot of the data are visual. But I guess there's one point to emphasize, and that's that Billy Kim and Billy Graham both attributed this astonishing feat where they seem to become one voice for many in the audience. So this astonishing feat to the work of the Holy Spirit. And it was, if one views it this way, the taking over of one person by the speech of another in the service of spreading the gospel, that is, in moving the word. So it sounds a lot like definitions of glossolalia, the taking over of speech by another agent um, through the function of the Holy Spirit. And so I show the technical dimensions of how this effect is achieved um, piece by piece. And in some ways, it parallels uh, chapter two, where in chapter two, I show technically and empirically how the transition from denotational speech to glossolalia and how from a relatively denotational ritual space to cacophony and back again reinforces ideas of the word even while it suppresses it in practice so in chapter four i show how the force of the holy spirit or the experienced force of the holy spirit which speaks across bodies speaks across languages and really speaks across cold war nation states we're in 1973 is so how the speaking across is made to f- fulfill the evangelical demands for the movement of the word And in that sense, it resembles um, the function of glossolalia, even though the whole point is to make it interpretable for new audiences.
1: Yeah, and uh, I do recommend people check out that video online. It's very striking, (laughs) very striking imagery. Um, So then you shift focus in the next chapter to the sociological regimes governing revelation and concealment in the church. So how does glossolalia fit within this network of Christian social relations?
0: So last two chapters um, of the book, this being the first of the two, look closely at the intimate and institutional life of speaking tongues as it affects and mediates, as you put it, social relations and forms of communication that make such relations possible. It's really, where does glossolalia fit in the social life of the church? Not just in the ritual space, not just in people's personal relationships with the divine, but what is it doing as a possibility? A communicative possibility within, within these various um, Christian spaces. So in the chapter you're referring to, I situate glossolalia between two kinds of movement. Again, this, this, this um, trope of movement is so incredibly important for um, the evangelical space because the speech moves and the word is the thing that should move. And so the gospel, as the basic authorizing dimension of language in the church, is the one that should be moving the one that should be holding people together, it's what should fill people's mouths and should pass on to other people. But as everybody knows, gossip is largely what constitutes social relations within the church outside of the ritual space. And it's a constant threat to the church and to the authority of its leaders. And so glossolalia, I found, actually is situated as a kind of buffer between these two things, because it not only allows Christians to build close relations to God, that is to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to them and through them, but it also allows them to share secrets with God, that is to keep secrets from others such that they can be revealed out loud, but no one can hear them. And also in a sense to escape from others in the church, to be alone with their God, but even in many cases without their God, simply to be alone. To speak in tongues in a large group allows one to simply get away from the group for a while. And a lot of people describe this as a basic function of their tongue. So it forms a whole buffer of privacy that protects people from the threat of being the object of talk. So the chapter really walks through the different forms that glossolalia can t- take to fulfill these functions and also gives a sense not only for what people want from language but also what they fear from it and a lot of what they fear understandably is being talked about.
1: So then that that takes us to the final chapter where you turn to the ambivalence of the practice. How can the affordances for intimacy and glossolalia also engender doubt? So the
0: book is in many ways also a study, as much as it's a study of glossolalia as such, kind of in context, it's also a study of sociocultural and linguistic shift. And what I found was that as much as glossolalia has spread out across denominations and congregations and has become normalized, its sheer spread and diversity presents many challenges to it. And what I found was that the ubiquity of glossolalia means that people have more chances to reflect on it, to observe it, and its diversity means they have more chances to compare it. That church's glossolalia to this church's glossolalia, that person's glossolalia to this person's glossolalia, so on and so forth. And with this reflection, observation, and comparison, more and more start to wonder if it's the real thing. And indeed, real glossolalia, among all of the forms that they participated in and observed, is a persistent question. Was I doing it? Was that person doing it? We were all speaking in denotationally unintelligible um, uh, utterances. Which of those were real? And then there's a question then, a kind of of, of where to find the real when in, within glossolalia and what the signs of that might be. And there's a very likely possibility among many people that what they observe, even feel, feel very deeply and sincerely is not actually real in the sense that what they're doing is not what they thought they were doing. So, so much of practicing glossolalia, in fact, is not, as I said above, trance behavior or direct connection even with the Holy Spirit. And so what I found was that doubts about the reality of glossolalia um, were doubts about its necessity as spiritual practice. This did not mean that they experienced religious doubt. Some did. And some felt that, for example, doubts within glossolale were a space in which Satan was trying to trick you, or you were being absorbed into a kind of um, uh, realm of verbal pleasure that was actually leading you away from God. There were all sorts of ways in which doubts that were clearly religious um, um, took place. But the more general point is that it wasn't necessarily religious doubt. It didn't make them feel less Christian, or their faith necessarily was being challenged. But that what they saw was the potential lack of utility for glossolalia for being a Christian. So as much as, for example, Hedging's mother felt that in order to be a true Christian, she had to speak glossolalia and always felt terrible about it. A number of people said, now I'm already speaking glossolalia and I'm not sure that it's helping me with my Christianity. So the trend of glossolalia as an aspect of their religious lives seemed no longer to carry the value that it once did. Um, so part of what I think I saw at, at the end of the book um, was the end, in a sense, of a great expansion of this charismatic form in South Korea, in a sense, to its own limits, to its own diverse spread, um, at which point it becomes uh, less and less um, the centerpiece of a religious experience. And people start to look to um, potentially other ways of, of finding their religious lives.
1: Wow, well, fabulous. So thank you, Dr. Harkins. Thank you so much for writing this important and very fascinating book and taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks so much for these questions. It's been a pleasure.